This episode is sponsored by Down to Earth Ice Teas. Our functional super teas are made from organic super herbs and adaptogens and contain no sugar, no preservatives, no food colorings, and range from only zero to 10 calories per bottle. Our beverages are USDA organic, kosher, vegan, non-GMO, and keto and paleo friendly. Finally, bottled beverages that you can truly trust. Check out drinkdowntoearth.com and use promo code PODCAST10 for 10% off your first order. Welcome back to the Down to Earth podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Ross Kopelman. Dr. Kopelman is the host of Med Chat Monday and the co-founder of the Derm Club. In this episode, Dr. Kopelman gives us his insights on the coronavirus and discusses ways to optimize our immune health. Here we go. Welcome to the Down to Earth podcast. We're your hosts, sibling duo, Jonathan and Lorena. In this podcast, we'll be spilling the tea on all things health and wellness related. This podcast is designed to motivate you to take care of your physical, mental, and spiritual health. We'll be bringing on doctors, healers, fitness experts, business leaders, and innovators. Thanks for joining us in our mission of making the world a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Here we go. Well, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. We have a lot of exciting things to talk about. We'd love to talk about coronavirus and the state of our country right now. But we want to start off with asking, what made you pursue medicine? I'll tell you the truth. I grew up in a home where my father's a doctor. So at a very young age, I got exposed to to medicine. I got to see firsthand how my father would impact the lives of his patients and I think the biggest thing is that my father would come home after a long, busy day and sit around the kitchen table and tell us stories about how he took care of his patients. And so that was my first preview into the field of medicine and the impact you can make on someone's life in a positive way. And I think I started to explore ways of, of getting exposure for you know, how I myself could impact patients. And so one of the things I did when I was younger, I mean, I don't know, younger, but if we recall the Haiti earthquake, I actually was a volunteer and I went to Haiti. And before Haiti, I had observed care. But when I was in Haiti, I was actually able to give care. And when I returned from Haiti, I actually spent time as an EMT. So throughout college, I was on the emergency squad riding an ambulance. And that's where I really discovered, you know, this is what I want to do. And I, I love taking care of people and being at the point of care when people need it the most. So that's kind of the, the foundation for how I decided to become a doctor. That's amazing. And I know it's obviously not an easy journey becoming a doctor. So you obviously were very drawn to become a doctor in order to pursue everything that comes with that field. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you something. When you become a, a doctor, it's, it's delayed gratification. Okay. There's a long, long long process to become a doctor. And what I mean by that is it starts in high school. Then you get to college and you have to take the the most rigorous science courses. So that's four years as it is. And then you have four years of college, four years of medical school, sorry. And then it doesn't stop after medical school. Then you have residency and residency can be anywhere from three to five years. And then you have a fellowship. So it's a very long process to become a doctor. And I would say anyone who, who's thinking about becoming a doctor, just realize that before you dive into it, realize it's a long road. It is rewarding, but there's going to be a lot of downs before there are ups because you're really at the bottom of the totem pole for a very, very long time. 
Absolutely. And you really need to know your why. And I need to keep reminding myself going through the journey. Like I need to write it down every couple of quarters. Like, why am I here? What do I want to do when I come out of this? Because it is a really rigorous journey. Yeah. Look, I mean, whether you go into medicine or you go into the field that you're, you're pursuing or whether you do nursing or whether you do, you become a physician assistant. I mean, it's a long road, but you really have, you're right. You have to have a why and what, what drives you because as you know, there are a lot of downs along, along the way and it's not a direct path necessarily. Absolutely. And now you're working with COVID patients in the hospital, which I'm sure no one expected to be working in the middle of a pandemic. So I really commend you for your service. So how has that been? How have these few months been? First and foremost, I don't think any of us really anticipated the scope of the virus. We knew it was happening in China, but I, I think as New Yorkers, we said, oh, it's not going to affect us. It's never going to come here. And to our surprise, it did. It didn't come right away. But when it came, it came ferociously. I happened to be working in the epicenter of the epicenter. So New York, as we know, was, was the epicenter for, for the country. And I happened to work in Queens. And because Queens is so concentrated with nursing homes, it became an epicenter of an epicenter. Early March, I actually contracted the virus, and I was one of the first employees at my hospital to have coronavirus. And we went from a hospital where there had been two patients who had coronavirus to two weeks later when I returned to a hospital that had 99% COVID patients. So the environment switched and changed very quickly. I vividly remember before coronavirus, if you walked into a, a room where there was a risk for respiratory transfer of a virus, not necessarily COVID virus, you'd put on a mask walking into the room, you put on your gown, but then when you left the room, you took off that gown, you took off that mask. When I returned two weeks later after being out for COVID, it was a totally different environment. You had to wear the same mask all day long. And the reason for that is because we quickly start to run out of masks and we quickly start to run out of gowns. So you would see multiple patients with the same PPE that you normally see with one patient. So the environment quickly changed. And this is my first year as a resident. So your first year as a resident, you're, you're an intern and that you're really, really, truly at the bottom of the totem pole. But this was a unique experience because, you know, never in our lifetime did we ever imagine that we would be living through a pandemic. And here I am in the center of the center, taking care of the most sick patients and the patients that I took care of. And by the way, please interrupt me whenever you want. But the the patients that, that I took care of, you know, were nursing home patients, patients that were coping with diabetes, really sick patients in all ages, all the way down to early 20s all the way up to 100. And I think the hardest part of it is that I and many of the other residents were the last form of contact between a family member and someone who might be dying in the hospital. And because most of the patients, or I should say many of the patients, went on to ventilators, which means that they're intubated, they have a tube down their throat, they can't talk, and many of the patients are completely out of it, you're really the last person that touches that patient. And unfortunately, many of the patients that that I had were on ventilators, and many of them did not make it. And I think that emotionally was was the the hardest part about this whole experience. It's really challenging, and especially as a first-year resident. You're starting off your residency and having such a 
challenging situation ahead of you, that definitely must not be easy. And I'm sure that you also learned a lot of valuable skills that you'll be able to apply you know, further along in your career as well. One of the things I'm going to stress is um, when you become a doctor or any, any field of medicine, it doesn't matter what field you're doing, whether it's nutrition, whether it's nursing, whether it's you're a chiropractor, you have to have humanistic skills, okay? You have to be able to talk to people. You have to be able to connect emotionally with patients and with, with family members because that's, that's really half the job. Having the knowledge of, of how to take care of someone is, is equally important, if not more important, but, but I would say being able to communicate is a very, very important skill. Absolutely. Now, you said that a lot of the patients that you've had range from 20 years old to 90 years old. Is that something that you saw in the beginning of March? Or did you see that in the later months that people that are younger are coming into the hospital with COVID? I think initially we saw older people come in. And I think there was the sentiment in the country that the young people were immune to this virus. And so there were still plenty of people congregating and getting together during this COVID environment. I'll give you an example. As you know, we're, I'm a Jew and both of you are Jew- Jewish as well. And I remember vividly Purim, which was right around when COVID started. And I ended up getting COVID like five, six days later. There were plenty of young people in New York City still congregating together. And there were still plenty of people going out on dates. So if anything, I think the young people helped to spread the virus throughout at least the New York area very quickly just because we were like, oh, we're invincible and we're going to be okay. But we brought it back to our family members. We brought it back to our grandparents. And I think later on, we started to see younger people starting to trickle in. And I think a lot of young people might have ignored the early symptoms of the virus and said, oh, it's cold. It's not Corona. And you know, even I was surprised. I had influenza back in February. So I had two viruses this year, lucky me. But I was like, there's no way I have COVID when they were testing me. I didn't believe it. I just, it just, it didn't seem possible. So even I was in denial. So I can imagine people who are not in the healthcare space denying it even more. Now, did you feel any symptoms that are different than like a, just a traditional influenza or virus that you said you had in February? Yeah. So for me, I actually had milder symptoms than I did when I had influenza, but everyone reacts differently. So when I came home, actually, every member of my family got sick. So my grandmother, who's 93, my parents, my sister, her boyfriend. So everyone got sick, but everyone also had different symptoms. Some people had stomach pain. Some people had muscular pain, fevers, chills. But I think the symptoms affect each person in a different way. In terms of the young people, our immune systems are very strong. And so the reason why there were so many young people that ended up going to the hospital is not because they had comorbidities, right? A comorbidity is like diabetes, heart disease, asthma. It's because our systems are actually overreacting. Our systems are so healthy that when they saw the virus for the first time, they were it was like a hyper response, which resulted in respiratory issues in many young people who never had any other comorbidities. Did everyone in your family recover fine? Everyone's okay? Everyone recovered fine. But as you know, we, we, I think every person in this country, or I wouldn't say every person in this country, but I would say all New Yorkers at least know one person who's been you know, significantly impacted from the virus. Speaking about ventilators a little bit, and I know I saw a statistic, I think it was maybe a month ago, and it was saying that most patients that go on ventilators don't make it out. Yes. So you see this so, firsthand, so I'm curious what, what you've seen. At my hospital, at least in the beginning of this COVID virus, every ventilator was being used. 
And our success rate of patients coming off of ventilators was near to zero. That was very close to what the rates were across the country. For many patients, this almost became a death sentence because if they went on a ventilator, the, the, the chances that they would come off a ventilator are extremely low. So it's very serious. And the reason for that is because we don't totally have the tools yet to really fight this virus. We don't have a vaccine. We don't know exactly if the concoction of medications that we're prescribing are the right ones. And especially in the beginning, no one had, there was no universal protocol for how we should treat these patients. Different drugs were being used, different protocols were being used, patients were being put on medications for different lengths of time. And that was all really to figure out like what works and what doesn't work. I will say though that I do believe New York will come back as one of the strongest parts of the country. And the reason for that is I do believe we've, we've built up herd immunity. Herd immunity is people who, who have had the virus and who have built up antibodies that protect them from being exposed to another slew of the virus. That's not to say that you can't get it again. But what I will say is that I don't know one nurse or one doctor within my network that had the virus that got the virus again. So I do believe we do have some level of immunity. That's not to say that the coronavirus can't mutate and that we can't get it again. But at least at this stage, I don't see the rates being very high. Oh, that's definitely good to know. And I know you mentioned that there's all different types of medications that are being experimented with, and you still don't have all the necessary tools to treat patients. But what have you found, whether it be in your personal experience or your family's experience, to be some effective treatments that helped you guys get back to full recovery? That's a good question. In terms of my family, I would say that my mother was the one who, who became mo most sick. She actually had to go to the hospital. She needed oxygen because she was saturating low. So saturation means that, well, let's step back for a second. And this is actually, this is an interesting thing to discuss. We all know that we need a thermometer in the house, right? A temperature thermometer so that if we have a fever, if you're over 100 or you're close to 99, you, you know, you're starting to, to creep up on a fever. So for all my patients that left the hospital, I started to recommend having what's called an oximeter. An oximeter allows you to measure, do you have proper oxygenation in your bloodstream? So one of the things that I recommend everyone to have now is an oximeter. And that simply allows you to put a device that goes on your finger, okay? And if your levels are above 93, 94, that gives you a signal that you're breathing okay. If it drops below 90 and you're in the mid 80s, well, now you know you have to go to the hospital. You need oxygen. You don't necessarily go onto a ventilator, so don't get scared, but you, you might need nasal oxygen or other forms of oxygen. And I think that's going to be something that's very important moving, moving forward. And ironically, I think there was a period where if you went on Amazon and you tried to buy an oximeter, they were sold out across the entire country. I think one of the positive things we can take away from like what has happened is that I believe the country as a whole are recognizing one that we have to take responsibility for our health. So it's important to be informed about health about what we can do to improve the quality of our health. And it emphasizes the importance of family and the values that are important to us because um, the coronavirus was something that affected every level of society. 
It affected prime ministers and presidents. It affected the rich and the, and the middle class and the poor. Unfortunately, you know, the poor, and when I say poor, the people who, are, who had comorbidities like diabetes, African-Americans, Hispanics, they got hit the most because of the diabetes and, and the other underlying issues that they have. But this affected everyone. And I think it emphasizes that it helped us to, to recognize what is important and what we have to prioritize as we move forward and we conquer this COVID virus. Absolutely. I definitely think it united the entire country. Like you said, no one was untouchable from the virus. We all have been affected by it in one way or another. And it's funny that you mentioned the poll socks because I remember, I think it was around April, I tried to get one. And I think there was one on Amazon for like $95, but hopefully they're back in stock. Now, I wanted to ask you, I'm assuming you're still working in the hospitals. Have you seen, obviously we don't see much in the news the past couple of days with what's going on about COVID. What are you seeing with the numbers? So I was certainly there when this peaked. Mm-hmm. And when it peaked, it was overwhelming. We're now at a level where I believe it's returned to normalcy. I remember when the emergency room had 120 COVID patients And even if you came into the hospital, not with suspected COVID, but you came in with an arm injury or whatever it was, you're automatically a suspect for COVID because if you came into the ER, your chances of getting COVID were very high because you were just surrounded by patients that had COVID. But now the environment is completely different. There is a normal flow of patients coming in. There is not a majority of COVID patients coming in. Actually, the numbers are pretty low. And I saw that firsthand. We were on a schedule in my hospital where you were working seven days straight, 12, 13-hour shifts. And this went on for two, two months. It's now returned back to a normal schedule. And that only happens when there's a normal flow of, of patients coming into the hospital. Well, that's good to hear. I'm happy to know that the numbers are normalizing and decreasing and that things are slowly, hopefully getting back to normalcy. But I have heard a lot of people talking about a potential second wave, especially once fall comes around and the weather changes. A lot of people are sort of predicting that there might be a second wave. What's your take on that? Yeah. So two things. One, we know that there's a lot of riots going on. It's now June, it's the early June, late May. And there's a lot of people outside rioting about black rights and other social issues. And one of the things that allowed us to actually fight this virus, or at least I don't want to say just fight the virus, but also decrease the flow of patients that were coming into the hospitals to prevent us from being completely overwhelmed. We were certainly overwhelmed, but I think that's a fear. There's a fear that this virus could reemerge in the summer now because there are so many people out on the streets who are not following social distancing guidelines. That's not to say that I don't believe the social distancing guidelines are a little over the top, but I do believe that in this environment, we do have to be careful. So that's, that's one fear. The second fear is, yes, I, I do believe that there potentially could be another surge in the fall. And that's simply because that coincides with the flu and it coincides with the cold weather and social distancing will be dampened and so people will still be moving around. But I do believe most of the major companies will still have work at home policies to try to prevent these surges from happening. But I certainly think the numbers will tick up. I don't believe they're going to go back to where they were before. And you got to recognize we were unprepared, okay, completely, completely blindsided 
by this virus. That's one of the reasons why it surged so quickly. You know, the hospitals got overwhelmed overnight. Overnight, two weeks. Remember, I, we went from a hospital that was two patients, okay, or at least two suspected patients with COVID to almost 99% COVID. So that's huge, right? And people were not social distancing or, or worried when, when this was spreading in China and Europe. So I think the country is completely different now. I think people are going to be culturally, we're used to kissing each other on the cheeks, right? Is that going to continue? I don't know. And this brings up another question, and I don't know if you want to venture into this, but as a young millennial or a millennial, okay, because we're kind of like right in the middle, the sweet spot, what happens to dating, right? What's the new norm? Is it going to be Zoom dating? We're going to be doing it indefinitely. Are people going to be afraid to get together because they're not necessarily because they themselves are, are afraid of, of really getting the virus, but like spreading the virus to their grandparents or their parents? What's that new norm going to be? I think those are questions that, we're, that, that we have to ask ourselves. And how do, we, how do we encourage people to go back to some normalcy? Because I do believe people should continue to date and, and whatnot. But I think it's difficult, especially in this environment. And I think people are still afraid to go back to dating, even as the social distancing orders open up. And then the bigger question is, most of the millennials have moved home. So now where do you go? Where do you go on dates? Okay. And most of the bars in the cities have restrictions in terms of how many people can come into a bar or how many people are going to go into a restaurant. People have moved away from the city for the summer. So what is that new norm? These are, these are questions that, that our generation has to, is going to be challenged with. We're trying to define our careers. We're trying to establish strong relationships with people and also achieve you know, financial security. So, I mean, these are all, these are tough times and all while trying to maintain our health. So Absolutely. And it's funny because I remember back in March, my mom was like, I think this is going to be the new norm and I couldn't believe it. But months later, it seems like it is the new norm. But I think it is a good opportunity for dating because you're forced to just speak to the person. It's not as superficial and you know, we find little things that we don't like about someone. And in our generation, it's like, all right, I'm moving on to the next person. But when you're home, especially if you don't have a partner, obviously that can be a little bit lonely. So you're more willing to put up with someone's faults that you may see that you would otherwise not give a chance. So it could be a really good time for dating, but hopefully- You're right. There are, there are certainly positives and there's certainly negatives. So those are the challenges that I think we're, we're faced with figuring out. So look, I was on the front lines fighting the virus. Now we have to pick up the remaining parts and, and, and solve a lot of the, the big questions that have not really been addressed yet. Exactly. Yeah, that's why it'll be interesting to see where things go. I mean, we see some cities that reopened and are back to somewhat normalcy, like Arizona, I know, reopened. Connecticut. And Connecticut is slowly reopening. Miami's reopening. And it's interesting because I have friends that live in all those cities and some people are going out as if, you know, it's back to normal. Some people are still scared. Some of the local businesses there that sell our products are still empty, like no one's coming in and some are packed. So you sort of see a mix, which is what I expected. I think some people have less fear. Some people have more fear. So I think it ultimately will take time for everyone to sort of let go of that fear and slowly get back to a normal routine. For sure. For sure. Now, I have a question for you because I've been the kind of person that people used to laugh at six years ago because I would wear a mask every time I'd be on a plane. If I was going somewhere super crowded, I would wear a mask and people were like, that's so strange. And now we see that everyone's wearing a mask. But I have seen some people posting about the fact that wearing a mask for too long can also have some sort of negative implications. So I'm curious to get your take on 
the actual power of wearing a mask? Does it really protect us? You know, it's the level that it has to. Great question. So if you have a virus, it certainly does protect the spread of the virus. And I think that is one of the reasons why the CDC recommended having the population as a whole wear masks in public places because they just were afraid that there had been so many patients or so many people in the population who are asymptomatic who didn't know if they had the virus or not. And so instead of worrying about the spread and also preventing the hospitals from being overwhelmed, I think they recommended that the population as a whole wear a mask in public places. With that said, I have seen people running with masks down the street, not surrounded by anyone. No, that makes completely, it makes no sense. Completely, it doesn't make any sense at all. If anything, I think that's a harm because when you're running, you need to properly oxygenate your body. And they are certainly limiting their oxygenation when they're running down down the street. I would say though, in public places, like if you're flying on the plane, if you're going into the supermarket, yeah, continue to wear a mask. And it's not only because it prevents the spread of the virus, but also you're helping to lower some anxiety amongst the people that are around you. I think anxiety levels are some of the highest levels ever, and people are a little hysterical. So I think there's an importance there. In terms of wearing a mask all the time and the risks, well, the other risk is that the mask is dirty. And if you're wearing the same mask routinely, I don't believe it's helping you. It's not necessarily making the people around you any safer. I think if you change your mask routinely, yeah, it's fine. But I, I don't think wearing a mask, the same mask all the time is, is, is necessarily a good health option. Yeah, I agree. Because I mean, I'll go into a supermarket, I'll wear it. But I see so many people running in our neighborhood with a mask on or driving in the car alone with a mask on. And so I do think that some people might be going a little bit overboard, which is a lot coming for me because I used to be the only one wearing one. Well, look, I actually blame the CDC. I think the CDC and our government failed to explain to the public like when they should wear a mask and where they should wear a mask. Mm -hmm. The fact that there are so many people wearing them incorrectly is just a testament to the failure of the government. So in some respects, I'm supportive of, of Trump in the sense that he didn't buy into the hysteria. I think there are appropriate times to wear a mask and then there's inappropriate times. And I blame, you know, the CDC for, for part of that leadership for, for not properly educating the public about when and where they should wear masks. Absolutely. And I think he got rid of some of those CDC members, but not all. <laughs> <laughs> so another question that I have is because we know that immunity is built on interacting with others, being exposed to viruses, to bacteria, and our body naturally is able to fight them off. So I suspect that being quarantined for several months now with just your family members, you're not exposed to as much, which could obviously impact your immune system. So what are some ways that we can build our immune system coming out of quarantine to best support us if we do come in contact with the virus again? So again, this is back to what I was saying before. I do believe New York City or New York as a whole, New York, New Jersey, like the tri-state will come back very strong. And the reason for that is because so many people had been exposed to this virus. And a lot of people who didn't even know they got exposed to this virus got the virus and had built up immunity. So I think there's tremendous herd immunity in this environment. So if you are someone who wasn't exposed, the likelihood that you're going to get it again is going to be, I believe, pretty low. 
there were some stats out there that one fourth of New Yorkers had been exposed to the virus. So if there's 8 million people living in, in the city of New York, that means 2 million people had exposure to the virus. So the likelihood that you as a New Yorker, if you're, I don't know who the, who the, who the sole listeners are, but I'm assuming there's a lot of New Yorkers listening to this. The likelihood that you have not touched someone who has been exposed to this virus is almost zero. So it's very likely, wait, did I say that correctly? It's almost hundred yeah. percent or zero. Yeah, yeah. That you did it. Correct. I said it correctly. But the point of this story is, so that's number one. You have to recognize that we live in an environment, at least in, in this area of the country. I think other areas of the country are going to, it can come back more ferociously in the fall, purely because they didn't get as much exposure. And there's not as many people who had the virus and, and the virus is going to continue to live and breathe until we have a vaccine to really wipe it out. And even when we have a vaccine doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be gone forever. But again, these are unanswered questions that we don't have the answers for. In terms of your health, it goes back to the fundamentals, exercise, eating healthy, not indulging in, in fatty foods, hygiene, taking showers and, and washing your hands. These are the fundamentals that I believe are important to help you continue to maintain good health. But in terms of the virus, I, you know, I think you got to recognize we also live in an environment where there's tremendous herd immunity. And I, I don't believe that the virus will spread as rapidly as, as before. So that, that's something to recognize. And I also believe because we're going to be continuing to social distance, that will also help us to protect ourselves moving forward in, in this new environment. Definitely. And I'm curious, because I know that you're in your residency now, has this experience impacted your plans for once you do finish residency and the type of medicine that you want to focus on? Oh, medicine has changed indefinitely. But I think medicine was changing before this. One of the, one of the buzzwords that I had known about for a long time, but now is really a buzzword is, is telehealth and telemedicine, right? Being able to contact and talk to your doctor remotely is something that is going to be part of the fabric of, of our healthcare system. Who wants to sit in a waiting room with 30 other people, 30 other strangers who potentially have comorbidities? Who wants to be in that environment with the risk of either spreading it to those patients or acquiring the, uh, a virus, not just corona, but any virus? So I think in many levels, many areas in medicine will be affected from this new environment. Because if anything, we were headed in this direction, but it really pushed us in this direction much faster. What are your thoughts? I mean, do you agree with that, that there will be less people going to physical doctors? I think so. I mean, I know myself personally, I've always been a little bit of a hypochondriac, but I think that I see sort of a lot of people in my life that typically are not afraid to catch a cold, not afraid to catch a virus, are now super afraid of it. If you come next to them, they sort of get skittish. So I do think a lot of people are going to, not only with COVID, but just with anything health-related, they're going to have more fear and also a greater desire to take care of their health, especially with preventative health. So I do think that it will impact people and maybe not want to go to a crowded doctor's office or maybe thinking twice before going somewhere that's super crowded. So I do think it'll have an impact. Yeah, absolutely. And even in our clinic, we, well, obviously for right now, no one's in the clinic, but we do have residents coming in for physical exams. And it seems like a model that they're going to keep where it's just going to be maybe one or two students per shift as opposed to 10. And if patients need to come in for a necessary physical exam, they'll come in. And that's the model that's been working for us. I don't know that all patients love that telehealth model, 
but it might just be something that we need to get used to. I totally agree. I think it's a new environment and I don't necessarily think it's a bad environment. I think that patients who are most sick should be seen physically, obviously by a doctor. But if we're talking about preventative health and things that are routine, maybe there's some level of care that that can be given adequately remotely without having to physically come into an environment. Definitely. And something else I'm curious to know about you, you're obviously a healthy guy. I'm curious how you like to take care of your health and how you focus on your preventative health and sort of self-care modalities that you include in your routine. Look, first and foremost, I'm going to say that we all cope with mental health, okay? Mental health is part of being human, okay? If we didn't have days where we were happy and also sad or depressed or, or angry or joyful, then we wouldn't be human. That's part of the, the big equation, okay? So in this environment, I would say mental health is something that, that many people are coping with because we're distanced from friends and family members and you're isolated and it's tough, you know? And even if you are with your family, too much family time is not necessarily a good thing. And there's, there's plenty of families that where there's fireworks. And if there aren't fireworks, it's not normal. So we're all cooped up. And, and I think there's just a level of anxiety in this country that we've never reached before. So how do you cope with that? Well, for me, at least, I do exercise. I became an avid Peloton user. I don't use the bike, but I, I use the, the classes all the time. I'm you assuming bike, though? I don't have the bike. I use the app. I do yoga. I do strength classes. I bike outside. So I think exercise is like one way to cope with anxiety. Spending time with family, but also finding your own private space within your home or outside or like some way to have privacy. Balance is key, right? So that's another way to cope with, with this environment and, and just trying to stay healthy, trying to eat healthy, right? Like people who are depressed tend to eat junk food, lots of ice cream, a lot of fatty food, potato chips, Doritos. You got to think about what you put into your body as fuel, right? And you want to put in the, the best fuel. So try to eat healthy. Just like the products that you push, you're trying to push healthy products. That's the same concept that I take. And then the other thing is engagement, right? So still try to stay in touch with friends and you know family by talking to them through FaceTime or messaging people. And then just stay, stay curious, you know, find a book to read or watch interesting documentaries, you know, keep your mind active. So it's all about a balance at the end of the day. And that's really the, the approach I take. Definitely. And those are all really great tips that I encourage everyone to try to incorporate into their daily routines. Now, there are so many diets out there and different supplements that are on the market. Are there any sort of dietary restrictions that you have or supplements that you add to your routine every day? Nope. I just try to eat a balanced diet. There's no particular diet I follow. Well, I shouldn't say that. I've been trying. I don't want to say I'm doing the keto diet, but I'm trying to eat a little more meat because I'm exercising. I'm trying to bulk up a little. But again, that goes back to exercise and eating well, right? I really do believe exercise is key in this environment, especially when anxiety is so high. And then the other thing that people can explore, and it's not for everyone, is is meditation. Meditation is a way to just calm yourself down and just refocus on what's important. Definitely. And I think now that it's getting really nice out, it's a good way for people to get outside, get some vitamin D, exercise, and try just get out of the house, which I think can be really nice for a lot of people, especially people who are living in small apartments. We're fortunate that we're able to be in the suburbs, you know, have a backyard, but some people weren't able to have that. So hopefully now is a good opportunity to do that. 
Totally. I totally agree with you. The more you're outside, the better because you got, you got oxygen, you got sunlight, you got, I think sun actually helps decrease levels of depression. We just went through, at least in this tri-state area, we went through a lot of rainy, dark days for the past two months on top of the, the craziness in the world. So now is like certainly a time for us to, to get outside and um, get some rejuvenation. Absolutely. Now, a question that we like to ask all of our guests is if you can give any advice to your, are you in your 20s still or are you 30? I'm 30. Okay. So if you can give advice to your 20 year old self, what would that advice be? Because you're one of our youngest guests so far. That's why. (laughs) Oh, you're so kind. It's okay. I know. I look like I'm in my mid 20s. It's fine. Great. Yeah, that's a good thing. (laughs) What would I say? I would say stay true to your values, right? Stay true to yourself. Whatever your goal is, realize that you're not going to get there overnight. It takes persistence. It's a long road. No matter what you go into, whether it's medicine, finance, marketing, just try to do something in life where you're going to impact others and where you you feel like you're living a meaningful life and never stray too far away from family and friends. That's good advice. That would be my advice. That's very good advice. Something else I'm curious to ask you is that if you could sit down and have tea with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? I would say my grandpa. I've always been close to my grandparents. I haven't seen my grandfather in eight years. So if there's anyone I would love to sit down with and uh, catch up with and let him know all the good things that have happened, that would be the one person. Wow. I'm sure yeah. he sees too. That's a great answer. And I'm sure that he does see everything that you're doing and is very proud of you because you know, obviously you're doing great work. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. What does your morning team look like? Do you start your day in a certain way? Because obviously the way you start your day could have a really large impact on your mindset, on how you physically feel. So I'm curious how you get started. So right now I actually happen to be off. So my normal routine is I wake up in the morning, I do a podcast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I wake up in the morning, I, you know, I exercise, I go on a bike ride, I come back, I make breakfast, I spend time with my family. I might exercise a little more and then, you know, I spend the day doing work. I work on different projects that pertain to medicine. And then I, I, I spend the rest of the day with family. It's a lot of family time right now. I'm not going to lie. We can, <laughs> we can definitely relate. Family all day. Yeah. But this was great. I'm so happy I was able to be on, on the show. And um, Down to Earth is, uh, is an exciting product that I can't yeah. wait to try. Where could all of our viewers reach you if they want to learn more about your work or if they have questions or want to get in touch? Where's the best place to reach you at? Yeah, of course. So I, uh, I'm on Instagram. You can follow me at Dr. Ross and uh, you'll be taken along on a, on a fun <laughs> adventure about health and wellness. You have a great Instagram. So I encourage everyone to check it out and, and follow you for sure. Okay, wonderful. This was great. Thank you for joining us during our conversation with Dr. Ross Koppelman. As always, if you have any questions, you can email us at podcast at drinkdowntoearth.com or reach out on Instagram at drinkdte. As always, stay healthy and stay hydrated. Cheers. Now it's time for you to go out there and do at least one small thing to better your health today. Always choose to make your life a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Until next time. Cheers to good health.